Thanks, Tom. Um, before we uh, open the word together, which is going to connect to the text that was just read, um, I just wanted to incur- take a moment to encourage you as a, as a family. Um, it's, it's harder and harder for people to connect in our culture and really get to know each other in ways that um, build and edify. And so I just want to encourage those of you who are Parkway family members who have been here for some time just to keep your hearts and arms open to the people in our church that come that are new. Um, and just do your best to unfold them. It's, it's, it's our part to be hospitable, and, and I think everybody who's a member of Parkway needs to be a part of that hospitality. And at the same time, I want to tell those of you who are new, because we have a lot of new faces that kind of come in, um, to, to, uh, to push in. Um, it's not always easy to get connected, but I know that the people who are here, um, I know many of them are just, they, they're good people who love the Lord and they have a lot to offer. And if people are working both ways, then, then I think we, um, we can make those connections that God will um, use to, to grow us. Um, and some of those things that can help us connect are, are events. And I, I have two kind of uh, uh, connection announcements um, that I just wanted to throw your way. One is for men. Um, the men's ministry is coming back online in the fall, and we have, um, we have an event in July, July 11th, which is the men's fishing trip. It is a chartered boat. Um, it, it costs 120 bucks, but the reason it costs 120 bucks is because it's a chartered boat, and it is not the USS Minnow, okay? So they're not going to go on a three-hour tour and get shipwrecked on the Fairline Islands. But uh, I'll tell you, um, I, I have taken my oldest son every time we've gone, and um, he's now in Groton, Connecticut, so I can't take him. But the memories I've had with him, watching him catch his first shark, watching him catch, catch one of the biggest halibut on the boat, and outfish me every time, um, those are precious memories to me. And, um, and I'm going. So if you're a guy and you want to connect up with other guys doing man things, then I want to encourage you to sign. Like, women can fish too. Okay, don't. <laughs> Sometimes we got to have something, you know, grab onto. But you can sign up in the back. I'll, I'll be back there. There's not only nine spots left. So, and then the other thing is that um, we have family camp coming up in September, 9th, 10th, and 11th. And uh, you may not like to camp in a tent. That's okay, but there's cabins there that you can rent. Um, or if you have an RV, bring your RV. Or maybe you're just down in the dirt tent camper. That's cool. But I have had some of the best conversations with people in the context of camping. So I want to encourage you to put that on your, um, on your uh, calendar. We're going to go down to one service on that day here um, during that weekend because and, and, we're going to have a service up there. So if you can do it, it's a great way to connect. All right. Let me ask you if you'd take uh, your Bibles, if you have them, and open to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. Just two verses this morning, and um, we are in the middle of a series looking at the various characters of Hebrews 11 and how their faith worked, how it showed itself in action, and we are in number two um, this morning. That is a man by the name of Enoch. Let's, uh, Let's pause and let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would settle our hearts uh, this morning before your word. And it's not, always, it's not always easy to hear a fresh word or an old word in a fresh way. But we, we pray that your, your word would be what it is, living and active this morning. And sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray that you would use that sword, Lord, to uh, divide bone from marrow in our hearts, and especially for those who have believed for any number of years, it's easy to become calloused by our familiarity with the Bible and with Christianity and the church. It's easy to become cynical, pessimistic. 
And Lord, we, we settle our hearts right now just to say, let that not be the case this morning. And it may be that someone is asleep and need to be woken up spiritually. It may be that some have um, wandered away and they need to be reawakened, drawn close. So Lord, I, I, I ask in these moments that you would do what only you can do, and, and that is um, energize and empower your word in a way that breaks through, that breaks through to that inner place where will and affection meet, uh, where we're changed from the inside out. May your people gathered this morning not hear the voice of a man, though I am just a man, but hear the voice of God speaking through a very um, ordinary, broken man. May the word of my mouth, Lord, um, conf- uh, convey your word to your people. And with that, I, I lift it up to your throne and ask, in the name of Christ, and on the basis of his blood, on the basis of the cross and his resurrection, Speak this morning, in Christ's name, amen. I don't think, this is a, maybe a bit of a different introduction than you're used to, um, but I don't think that a church or Christians or a preacher or a teacher of the gospel can ever overemphasize grace. You never talk about it too much, expound on it too much. You know, the idea that God has acted decisively in such a way as to provide everything that we need to be saved, both now and forevermore. That he's the one who sent his son, he's the one who offered his son, he's the one who raised his son, he's the one who forgives, atones, redeems, he's the one who preserves us, preserves our faith, he's the one who will take us home, he's the one who will raise us up on the last day. All those are his works. And that's why it's good news. Why we're able to say to the nations, our God has acted on our behalf. And all he asks of you is that you believe what he has done for you. That's the grace part. And I don't think a preacher or a church or a Christian can overemphasize it. Either in their personal study, personal devotion, or in their preaching and teaching. I do, however, believe that Christians and pastors and churches can underemphasize the commands of Scripture. And sometimes... I think the fear is that if there's, if there is a, an emphasis on the commands of Scripture, and I'm talking about the imperatives, the directives that the Bible gives, and it gives a lot of them, both New and Old Testament, that somehow if we emphasize those commands, that we're in jeopardy of creating a, a sense of legalism in a church. And I think that is a, that is a um, well, that can have tragic effects on the church. That while we never can overemphasize grace, we, we can underemphasize the commands of Scripture, which show us, they like illuminate for us how it is that we're supposed to work out the salvation that God has freely given to us. That is how, how we're supposed to please the Lord. Commands and legalism are not, not, not the same. Now, you can use commands in a legalistic way. That is, if you do this, 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 then God will accept you. That would be a legalistic use of commands. But the commands are important. They're all there. In the same way that grace and works are not necessarily opposite either. That you can underemphasize the idea that for grace to really be real, it must work out in your life. Grace and works can go together in a way. In fact, they do go together. And if you noticed in that text that was read, that was Ephesians 5, right? The same book 
where he spends three chapters illuminating the majesty of God's grace. And some of our most precious verses that we've memorized come out of that, that, chap, or that book, first part, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. In other words, this is all that God has done. That's the first three chapters. But Paul, the apostle of grace, Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and all of his great works, letters, um, is the same one who wrote chapter 5, which is strong. It's a strong word of saying, listen, you used to live in darkness, but you shouldn't live in darkness anymore because people who continue to live in darkness um, are going to face and he was just out there with it, the wrath of God, and have no part in the kingdom of God. That is, those are his instructions to us. He's, he's moral instructions for God's people to live differently based upon what God has done for you. To have distinctive, uh, distinctiveness about the moral way in which we treat each other, choices and so forth. So he's, he has no problem with the commands of, of, of saying, this is what God has done. Now this is how you must live in response it's in response to it. And there's a particular phrase in there, I don't know if you caught it, that was really interesting, where, where he says, walk as children of light and try to discern what pleases the Lord. Right? He said, try to discern how you can make him smile on your life. Try to live in such a way and figure it out how to live so that he experiences pleasure in your life. Now, you might be thinking, how does that work, right? Because I, I thought that God sees me as righteous because of what Christ has done, not my own righteousness, but his. And if he sees me as righteous and I'm fully acceptable, I'm his son or daughter, then isn't he always pleased with me? <laughs> I can see you thinking that. I thought that. Yes, in one sense, it's true. In a categorical sense, when God looks at a true believer, he says sees nothing but perfect righteousness, and in that sense, he's pleased. But there's another sense, a relational sense. Let's just call it a, call it a relational uh, real-time sense, in which we can grieve the Lord, that's a displeasure, or on the opposite side of pleasing the Lord. So categorically, God is always pleased with us, but in another sense of our relationship, we can grieve him or we can please him. And I think that's what Paul means when he says, um, try to discern what pleases the Lord. Um, and, and the, you know, the best way that I can think of how that works is one of the dominant metaphors in Scripture of marriage, right? You know, marriage is a covenant, and the Bible is, 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 is based, grounded in covenants, uh, the idea of people making promises to each other. And, you know, bride and groom stand before the altar, and they say, you know, I will stand by you in sickness and health and rich or for poorer to the very, very end. In other words, they're sticking it out all the way. And they exchange rings, which are a sign and seal of those covenant promises, and then they become united legally and spiritually, they become one, and it's not supposed to be separated, right? That's at least how it's supposed to be. That's, that's marriage. Covenant. They're one. Not supposed to pull it apart, right? But, and I'll, I'll just speak out as a husband because I can't speak experientially as a wife, it has taken a lifetime to figure out how to please my bride. <laughs> and a lot of things... I did early on, I realized, ooh, she's not happy with me, you know? It's probably not a good thing as a husband to tell your wife to take the car to get its oil changed. Probably not a good thing to clean your carburetor in the kitchen sink. I tried that one time. Didn't make points. 
it's definitely not a good thing on your anniversary to buy her a leaf blower. <laughs> but you learn, okay, that, 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 wasn't, that, didn't, that went over like a lead balloon, you know, lead zeppelin. <laughs> uh, but then learning, okay, a wise man, a wise husband learns, all right, what pleases my wife? And, and the, the, the same idea holds true with our relationship with God. We are in covenant with God. When we came to faith, we became sons, and he became our father in a very unique and special and enduring way. And that's never going to go away. And in that sense, we are in covenant. We're locked in. His hand will never let us go. But in another sense, we, as, as his people in life, learn, if at least we're supposed to learn, that's Paul's encouragement, his command, his directive, we're to try to discern how to please our father. And we can do that through the commands of Scripture. That those are given to us so that we can learn what it means to love God, or what it means to honor the Lord. It gives us concrete ways by which we can love and express uh, the salvation that God has won for us um, to him. We can also learn by way of example. And one of those examples of a man, who a life who pleased God, is this character by the name of Enoch. All right? He first shows up in Genesis chapter 5. Now, if you're newer to the scripture, or you don't know your Bible that well, it's, it's okay. Let me just provide a little historical context of how he fits in. Genesis 5 is a, is a, a genealogy, a list of, of 10 generations. And th- those are usually the favorite parts to read when you're reading the Bible through a year. Adam begot Seth, and Seth begot so-and-so, and Lamech, and Lamech begot so-and-so, and Methuselah, and all the way down to Noah, right? Now, those, those genealogies are really important. They may be boring reading, but they're really important. And Genesis 5 traces 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And Enoch is number 7. Now, as I said, generations, excuse me, genealogies are important because what God is doing in the Old Testament, whenever there's a genealogical record, is he's connecting Adam to Christ. Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Jewish people, to King David, and all the way to the one who would restore it all, redeem it all, and that is our Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ. So it's, 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 it's linking God's work of redemption. That's what those, those genealogies were for. And in that long list of genealogies from Adam all the way to Jesus, seventh on the list is this man by the name of Enoch. And in the, the, if you read through, take the time to read chapter 5 of Gen- Genesis, you'll realize he, he kind of stands out, both he and Noah. Um, and this is what it says about him. When Enoch was 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Back then they had kids later in age because they lived like almost 1,000 years, right? Which is interesting, by the way. Um, there are lots of flood stories out there that are unrelated to the Bible, um, and some of those stories speak of kings living long ages. Just another record outside the Bible that speak of people living um, enormous lengths of time. Anyway, side note. Uh, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365. He, he was a young one when uh, the Lord took him. Believe it or not, 365 years. Everybody else lived eight, nine centuries. But the reason for this is verse 24. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
He's the only, excuse me, the second person in recorded biblical history who did not have to face death, but was translated or taken up by God, both he and Elijah, according to the biblical uh, text. So here you have, have Enoch. Two times it says that he walked with God, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. He walked with God. Now, something I want you to contemplate um, is the time in which he lived. As I said, he's seventh generation. His great-grandson is Noah. And the, the moral context in which he lived um, was not good. He was living in the midst of a massive moral landslide that's going to end in chapter 6, 7, and 8 with God wiping out the entire human civilization with a flood with the exception of eight people. Like things have become so violent and so corrupt and so detestable. And this tells us where humanity can go. And according to Revelation, will go again. To the point where God has to wipe it out. And if you know anything about the Lord who is slow to anger and does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, um, that means it was really, really bad. So he's living in a time of, of moral collapse, landslide. Um, as you and I very much live at some level on a slide. So he was able to live a life that pleased the Lord, walk with God amidst a, a, a moral catastrophe in a way that I think should encourage us in the climate in which we live. Okay? Well, Hebrews 11 uh, reflects on this text, this individual, and this is what it says. By faith... Enoch, same individual, seventh from Adam, was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, because he's the one who pleased God with his life. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here's a man whose life pleased the Lord. And answering the question, what does it mean to live a life that pleases the Lord? This is part of the answer, is uh, Enoch's life. Now, I want to kind of answer that um, by looking at the last verse first, verse 6, and then kind of come back up, all right? Because um, you and I both know uh, it's not what you do, per se, that pleases the Lord, but it's your heart behind what you do that ultimately pleases the Lord. And verse 6 um, expounds on that heart, okay? Now, the Sunday school answer, again, um, how do you please the Lord? Well, you have faith, right? And that, that's clarified right there in verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. doesn't matter how good you are, how moral you are. doesn't make a difference whether you're feeding orphans in Calcutta. If there is no faith, there's no dependence upon God, no acknowledgement that he's the author and perfecter of life, then... All of those good works are nothing. They amount to nothing in the eyes of the Lord. So that's by faith. But verse 6 expounds on the nature of faith and the nature of the heart that pleases God. And uh, I want to focus your attention on the, the words after four. It says, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, and he must believe there's two things. That, one, he exists, and two, he rewards those who seek him. Those two things. In other words, faith that pleases the Lord is faith that one believes that God exists, and that, that one's kind of just self-evident, right? 
You're never going to please someone, or you're never going to live to please someone that you don't even believe is there. You just, you, you won't do it. Um, I stuck my foot in my mouth in the first service. I'm not going to do it again. I'm just going to let that one go. Um, if we believe he's really here, he's, he listens, his presence is ever a bit more real as the ground upon which we walk, that we believe that in him we live, move, and have our being, he is really a person, well, then we can, then we can, um, then we can go on to please him. That's kind of foundational. You're not going to please someone you don't believe in. But the second part is a, is a bit um, more insightful, the second piece of this, this belief that pleases the Lord, namely the belief that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. This is part of what we're supposed to believe, that God rewards those who, who seek after him. Notice there's a connection. There's part that God does. He rewards. And there's the part that, that comes from us, that is, who seek him. So God rewards. It's his action. In the context, I believe it's a future action. God will reward. And our part, who seek after him. And that's a present tense in the context. God will reward future those who are seeking him. Now, how do, you, how do you understand that in a way that is not legalistic? That, well, if I seek after him, um, then he's going to reward me. Well, to answer that question, I, I want to ask two more questions. Now, I'm digging into this a little bit. I want you to work to follow me because I, I think it's really important. The two questions are this. What is the reward that God gives? And two on what basis should we believe that he will reward those who, 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 who seek him? Uh, two questions. The first one, what is, what is the reward? He rewards those who seek him. What's, what's the carrot at the end of the stick? What's, what's the, the grand prize? Is, that, is it a cottage by the beach? Seventy virgins? That's a reference to another religion. You can laugh a little bit. <laughs> let me just say for sake of time, let me say that um, what God rewards those who seek him with is himself. That God, the reward, is God himself. And the, the reason I know that is because of the way it's phrased. Is that God rewards those who seek, what's the next word? Him. The object of seeking is its own reward, right? Like if, if, if I scour every car and RV and truck trader across the country looking for a fully restored 1973 Ford Bronco Sport Edition, and I find it, not that I'd ever want that or anything like that, <laughs> what's my reward? It's the Bronco, right? What I seek is its own reward. You know, the girl that blows the doors off of your heart, you see for the first time, you're like, man, I just, I gotta, I, I, I gotta know her. I gotta date her. If Lord willing, I'm gonna marry her. And you spend all kinds of money and time orchestrating everything to win her heart and win her hand in marriage. You're seeking the girl. What's the reward? The girl is the reward. You can speak out. This is helps me a little bit, just knowing you're not asleep or playing on your iPad or phone. 
It's the girl. God rewards those who seek him. The reward is the object of seeking. So he is the reward. And that, friends, church, is consistent with the whole of the Bible, that the great reward of the Christian faith is not the benefits that come with knowing God. The benefits are good and they're there, but, but, but the main reward, the main treasure is the presence of God himself, right? And that's, that, that you, you can't get away from that as the, as, as, as the fact that characterized the men of faith in the Bible, you know? Um, one thing I ask for, that will I seek after. And what is it? It's, it's not, a, not, a, not a holiday at the, at the, at the Ritz-Carlton in you know, San Diego. It's, it's to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, like to be in his presence. Apostle Paul talking about Christ who is God's presence given to us. I count it all as lost, everything. I consider it as trash compared to knowing and gaining Christ. I mean, to live as Christ and to die as gain, it's like he, there's just one object at the end, one great reward, and ultimately it's the presence of the Lord. That's, that's got to be the, 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 uh, the heart. And so if, if he's what you're seeking, then he's going to reward you with himself. And that, that puts God at the center and the highest place of faith, that kind of faith that longs. It says, my soul longs. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Why the courts? Because that's where God is. He will reward us with his presence. That's, that's, that's part of the faith. God rewards those who seek after him. I'm not suggesting that you can't seek the Lord apart from God's gracious work in your life. But if God's gracious work in your life has brought you to a place where there's even a little hunger for him, well, then you've got to sink your teeth into the idea of and the truth of the reward is coming. So that's question one. What is a reward? It's God himself. Question two is more along the lines of, so on what basis can we actually trust that that's going to happen? And, and this gets down to what makes it not legalistic to speak in this way. Uh, at the end of the day, I believe, and the greater context of, of Hebrews 11, I have to draw on here because um, it doesn't tell us on what basis he believed, but most of the characters in this passage are commended because they took God at his word, and in particular, his promises. That is, they trusted what he said was true, and they banked their entire life on it, in particular, what he said about um, he was, what he was going to bring in the future, his promises. And at the heart of all of God's promises is the reward, right? At the heart of all of God's covenants that he makes with his people where he says, I will do this. I will bless you. I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. At the center of it, and it's repeated over and over and over again from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is the words, and I will be your God and you will be to me a people. Is this, you will be mine and I will be yours. It's, that's almost like marriage language. We're going to be one. All the way through. That's what he said to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be to me a people. That's what he said to the people of Israel through Moses. I will be your God. You will be my treasured possession, my people. I will be yours. You will be mine. 
Jeremiah, Jesus, Revelation, at the very end, you get to the peak and the culmination of it all. And what do we hear from the throne? But we hear, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He himself will be with them, and God himself will be with them as their God. And at the very end, chapter 22, I think it's verse 4, it says, and they shall see his face. That's the, that's the finale. You know, like at fireworks on the 4th of July, that's the finale, is, is God's presence coming down and being with his people. And that has been the heartbeat, that is, the, that is the, the, the joyful hope of God's people through the ages, is he is the reward. And the reason we know that it's going to happen is because he promised, and the reason it's not legalistic is because we're called to believe promises. When we believe those promises, God's going to do what he's going to do. That one honors his word. And it also, if he's the great reward we seek after, it makes him everything for us. That, of course, uh, brings up a bit of a question for us. If this is the heart and soul of Christian faith, biblical faith, that God is our main reward and he's what we're living for, what we're shooting for, what we're longing for, what we're hoping for, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for, then what is it right here, right now in our time that we treasure most? Right? Is it really when you kind of push it all away and you're able to kind of maybe brush away the, the love that we have for our, our, our wife or husband or children and grandchildren or great-grandchildren or um, the 1973 fully restored Bronco, what is it that we treasure the most? Underneath it all, and it, it, is it really? Does, is it? Is it? Is it God's presence? Because here's the thing: if it's not, and I don't, this isn't to create guilt. This is just to create an awakening. This is to re, a self-realization maybe, a self-awareness, that if it's not, if there's something else that's the reward that you seek upon which your heart is fixed other than the presence of the Lord, then it doesn't matter how, how much we look like Christians on the outside or how much music we sing or, or um, what we write on our walls or the bumper stickers we put on our car. The bottom line is that we look like Christians on the outside, but inside we're idolaters. And if that's the case, it's like, okay, well, let's get back to real Christianity then. And Lord, I, 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 I've, I've, I've Christian on the outside, but I'm pretty much a pagan on the inside. Because your presence isn't the most important thing to me. Everything else is. Listen, that, that's, a, that's a truth you have to face. Every one of us has to face an answer for ourselves. And, 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 and sitting in here and, and leaving here with, well, I don't really quite agree with the preacher. Listen, at this point, I know I'm standing on solid ground. That's Revivals come out of an awakening or a realization that, wow, this is what the Bible teaches, and I'm not there. And only when you come to that place, I think, does the Spirit of God say, now it's time. And the treasure of God's glory and beauty and power and love and greatness and majesty and splendor awakens within you. Good thing to ponder, everybody here, ponder whether that's true or not of your life. It's for me to ponder whether it's really true of my life or whether I'm standing up here and acting.
That's the heart, right? Let me just back up one, and this one's a short one. I lingered too long. Um, of his action, of his character. Out of the heart, a man's character is formed. God's work in a heart, what he, what he worships. You'll notice back in end of verse 5, it says, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And that is a, a, a if you will, a, a summary of what's written in Genesis, chapter 5, 22 and 24. Two times it says Enoch walked with God. He walked with him, you know, like two friends walking down the street. It's not f- speaking physical here. Um, that was in the Garden of Eden, but not in this time. But he, he walked with the Lord. He walked with God. What does that mean? It, will, it means at least two things. It means that he had an ongoing intimate relationship with the Lord. It wasn't once a week. It was, it was like, hey, I'm related to you, and I'm walking life with you. That's, that's a beautiful picture, walking with the Lord. But it also means, because you can't walk with the Lord unless you walk in the ways of the Lord. In other words, he was a man whose heart, and he wasn't perfect, he was a sinner like the rest of us, and yet God had laid hold of his heart, and he was a, a, a person who was being shaped by the character of God and by the commands of God. So that I think he was a person who lived out Micah 6.8. He's a man who loved justice in the midst of an immoral society. A man who loved kindness or mercy in the middle of a brutal, violent culture. Uh, and a man who walked humbly with the Lord. Or to use the words of Jesus, which is simply a resummarization of that, he was a person who loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and somebody who loved his neighbor as, as himself. Now, loving your neighbor is to love justice and to do mercy. So that's, it, it, it took shape in, his, in the way he actually lived. And, and dare I say, like, that's why the commands of Scripture are there. Because it's too easy to compromise and say, hey, I think loving God looks like this. And the next person comes along and says, I think loving God looks like this. And the two don't match. So how is it, how is it that we can know whether one's truly loving God with their life or not? Except God has given us instruction and directives to say, this is what it looks like to love me. Right? That's why he gives us those instructions. If you want to love me, if you want to show your love for me, don't walk in the darkness, walk in the light. If you want to, you want to uh, love me, well then forgive others like I forgave you. You want to love others, or love me, excuse me, then don't defraud your brother, don't steal from him, don't commit adultery. That's what it means to love me. That's why we need those things, Right? And, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record in what I'm about to say, but I don't know. I feel like this record needs to be broken and replayed over and over and over and over again. I feel, and it's not just a matter of my emotional state, I, I think, feel a growing burden and urgency for God's people called by the name of Christ to see the importance of fidelity to Jesus as a relates to our moral life. Rephrase, I don't think I can say it exactly the same way. But we should feel a growing burden and urgency for the importance of fidelity to Jesus and fidelity to his word, to his teaching, to his gospel in the moral outworking of our life. There's a lot at stake in this. 
I have a, a young man who reached out to me two weeks ago um, by, by text, and he used to go to Parkway, a Christian, um, but now he's, he's, he, he moved on, uh, moved away. And he sent me this text. He goes, I need a new heart. I, I, I need a new heart. And I'm like, what? Run back and said, what are you talking about? You need a new heart. I mean, all of us need a new heart. And if you're a believer, then you actually do have a new heart. You just need to, you know, feed it daily with grace and gospel. But I said, what do you mean? He goes, I, 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 I live with a group of people who sleep around all the time. Like, they don't care who they sleep with. And the married guys take off their rings. And they sleep around and cheating on their wives. And, and the sense was that he told me, is that, and I, like, I kind of want that too. Right? That's, that's right in line with everything that's going on around us. Well, he's, one, I'm glad he's struggling with it because he knows it's wrong, but there's still a desire to conform to the cultural influences and friendships around him. And I, I, I basically said, listen, you know, this is, the, this is the point where, like, each of us as believers living in a society maybe not all that different than Enoch's, who do I live to please? And where is my allegiance and loyalty? Is my loyalty to the immoral majority? To social consensus? To an edict from the White House? Or do I live for the pleasure of one, my king, my God, my savior who gave his life for me and bled and died for me and promised to me that that I'm his and I'm forgiven? He didn't answer. But you know what I pray for? I, I, I pray that he will come to the realization that I don't care what a million people say around me. I live to the pleasure of Christ Jesus, and I do my best by the grace of God to conform my life to his standard in love for him because he first loved me, period. And I, I, I sense that all of us have to, sons, daughters, children, even people in here, I'm sure, disagree with some of the stuff I just said. But let's uh, cut to the chase and just say, you know what, you need to decide who you're going to serve in your life, who you're going to obey in your life as an expression of love to the one who gave everything for us. And you know what the cool thing is in Enoch's life, and this will close with this, it's like, you see it. And this is why I think Old Testament people believed in the afterlife. Because what does it say? Verse 5, he was taken up, didn't see death. After 365 years, God's like, all right, you've been waiting for your reward long enough, walking with me, and scooped him up, and he got his reward. A reminder to us that, you know, the day's coming. And, and you have to, again, pray that God catalyzes and galvanizes that sense of belief in the promise that, you know, the day's going to come, and it's going to surprise everybody on planet Earth. Um, and people are going to go, what? You mean it's real? Only it's going to be too late, because a trumpet is going to rattle the universe. 
And the Son of God, the Son of Man is going to return. And every side, I will see him, everyone. There will not be a single person, dead or alive, who will not see him, I, I believe. That's part of the vindication. There will be a resurrection, and every eye will see, and every knee will bow, as he unveils himself, his glory, to us. And the dead in Christ rise, and those who are alive, like Enoch, will be gathered together, and we will know that the day has come, and the presence of God is now with us. Amen. The long dream, the long anticipation, the assured hope of a thousand generations culminating in a single but eternal moment. There you go. Great. This is going to seem like a deviation, but I am, I'm going to pray for us. But afterwards, we are taking a, a, a love offering to help out with the final um, remodeling of the Hanson House. And if you're brand new with us, um, brand new with us, John Hanson, our founding pastor, went to be with the Lord, and his wife is moving into a house that needs help. So if you desire to give, um, now would be the time to do that. And if you offer it up in faith, I know the Lord's like going, I, those people love, be good. Lord, I pray that you would, um, in these moments, just reinforce uh, what's been said. I, I pray that if anyone in this room feels the nagging question, or maybe the sense of conviction that something's off in their life, Lord, I pray that um, that, that that conviction, that word, would bear fruit, and it wouldn't be buried over or set aside, um, but that it would create new life and new joy and a new beginning, maybe, as, we, um, as we're honest with you. So, um, Lord, I thank you for this church and the people who gather here, and thank you for the Hansons who you used to plant this place, and we just pray that you would use um, our gifts of love to honor your name, to honor your love, and to minister to Sharon Hansen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.